The Interchange is brought to you by the Yale Program in Financing and Deploying Clean Energy. Through this online program, Yale University is training working professionals in the clean energy sector, accelerating the deployment of clean energy worldwide, and mitigating climate change. To connect with Yale expertise, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact, visit yalecleanenergy.info interchange and apply before March 13th, 2022. You couldn't smell CO2. You could not see CO2. So it took 100 years for us to figure out that it had an impact on our climate. Welcome to the Interchange Recharged. I'm your host, David Miller, and welcome back. Today's episode has been a recent hot topic amongst my peers who work with some of the largest banks around the globe. Many people have been asking me what we know about carbon management these past few months and how viable carbon storage really is. It's funny though, because these same people had no idea what carbon capture and storage were over a year ago. It's never too late to learn and that's why today's episode is dedicated to this topic. To help shed more light on this important part of the energy transition, Today's guest, Claude Letourneau, is the CEO of Swante, a trailblazing carbon capture company based in British Columbia. Claude has decades of experience in advanced technology development and commercialization. He also received both his bachelor's and master's in chemical engineering from the University of Laval, Quebec. In this episode, we'll be diving into how Swante is working on creating a carbon market, why their technology is different from previous competitors, and the importance of carbon capture for the energy transition. I'm excited to get into the scalability of this technology and discuss where it can be applied in the real world. Welcome to the show, Claude. Thank you for giving us your time today, and I know you're a busy man. Thank you for having me on this podcast. I was looking forward to having a chat with you. Why don't you give us a little overview of Swante, how you guys started, what you guys do? Yeah, Swante is a uh, Vancouver-based company. We are a what we call a purpose-driven company with a vision to build what we call a carbon marketplace in order to lower the human impact on climate change. So what we have is a, a unique technology to capture CO2 from very diluted streams, such as what you would find in, in the air called direct air capture, or uh, from industrial emission, avoiding the CO2 going out in the atmosphere. So we take the very diluted stream of CO2 and we concentrate the CO2 to 95% purity. So it allows somebody to either use the CO2 or compress the CO2 and pipe it to safely store the CO2. And in terms of the technology on how you capture the carbon, how does that work? The technology is a nanomaterial that uh, we've engineered, and we we call this a sorbent. And and that sorbent is then laid on a a very thin film. um, And then we we stack all these sheets together to create a filter. And and that filter is then uh, used to catch and release the CO2. Uh, So we've designed also a, a machine we call it a contractor that we put the filter in and then it rotates and within a cycle of less than 60 seconds, the filter will be able to catch the CO2 from the uh, diluted stream of mixture of CO2. It will then entrap the CO2 inside the filters and then the second zone is we regenerate the filter by putting steam and then we, we extract the CO2 from that filter and then we make 95% CO2 purity that can be compressed. And then the last step of the contactor is to dry the, the beds or the filters so that we can restart the cycle. So it's a continuous process of catch and release and cooling all in a very uh, small piece of equipment. 
Hey, carbon capture and storage has been a, a hot topic recently. And I know one of the challenges has been the hard to decarbonize industries such as concrete and fertilizer. But it sounds like this technology helps deal with some of those areas that are less concentration or, or lower pressure and solves that issue. Yes, absolutely. So our technology is well suited for um, hard to abate industry. Um, we're focusing primarily on decarbonization of the hydrogen process, what it's called uh, from natural gas. You go to a steam methane reformer and then you can make hydrogen. Unfortunately, you generate 10 tons of uh, CO2 per ton of hydrogen you generate. So you need to catch that CO2, which is about 20% concentration in a nitrogen mixture. So we, we capture that CO2 at, as an end of the pipe, non-intrusive in the process, so you can go in and equip all the existing SMR plant or hydrogen plant with our technology. Cement is another case where when you take the rock and you break it, you, you make CO2 and in the process of making cement, so we, we catch again the CO2 from that uh, flue gas as well. And we've also adapted our technology to be able to be applicable for direct air capture, which is much more diluted. We're looking at 0.04% CO2. And in this case, we're doing it in partnership with uh, a leading company in that space called Climeworks in Switzerland. And one of the other aspects to the carbon capture story is the huge investment that comes along with it. So talk to us a little bit about your cost structure. What's the value proposition for Swante and what you provide? Well, the value proposition is that we lower the cost of the contactor and the filtering system to capture the CO2 compared to existing technology that's been out there for 85 years. It's called a gas-to-liquid system. So you're using a solvent to catch the CO2, and then you need to boil off that solvent to regenerate the solvent and release the CO2. So it's quite energy-intensive because you need a higher-pressure steam to do so. So in our case, we're using very low-pressure steam, and the contactor itself, it combines all three operations of catch and release and cooling into a single piece of equipment. We call this process intensification. So the capital cost of the plant will be much lower than a liquid system where you need a tall tower to capture, another tower to uh, regenerate, and, and a reboiler or heat exchanger to, uh, to boil off the solvent. You know, the carbon capture and storage idea has been around for decades. What are you seeing change now, and, and why is it getting more attention, uh, more investment? Is it the technology that's surrounding so it's more cost-efficient, it's scalable? What's different today versus 10, 15 years ago? I think the industry now is, um, is now coming to understanding that carbon is the backbone of our economy. So for many years, we, to, for renewable to become uh, one of the pillars of the climate change, it had to had an enemy, and the enemy was oil and gas, yes? <laughs> so therefore, anything that was coming from the oil and gas industry was, shouldn't be looked at because you, know, you could generate power from renewable, and that, that's the end of it. Well, I think now people are more mature in their understanding of the four pillars for climate change. So uh, electric uh, vehicle is absolutely one. You need also renewable and you need hydrogen as a new uh, fuel carrier, which when you burn the hydrogen, you don't generate CO2 at the point of consumption of that fuel. And people understand now that carbon management is complementary to all of these three other pillars. So that's the understanding that uh, I think has changed. Uh, and people are, are trying now to uh, apply the carbon management to hard-to-abate industries, where in the past it was more tied up to decarbonization of coal power plant. 
And you know, if you look at the dynamic, well, the enemy was the only coal power plant. You can go to renewable, and, and therefore you don't need carbon management. So I think now carbon management is less and less associated with decarbonization of the coal industry or the power industry. It's more associated with the hard to abate industry. We need steel, we need cement, we need all of these products to enjoy our infrastructure buildup as the population grows. And people realize now that CO2 will be emitted regardless of the fuel you use. Going back to the cost standpoint, I mean, at what scale does this really become cost efficient? I mean, can you approach the small scale emitters uh, in just as an efficient cost standpoint as you would some of the heavy industrial users? Well, typically any industrial processes are more capital efficient when they're bigger than when they're smaller. And in our case, because we're quite modular, we can have enjoyed the same capital efficiency at small scale than you would at a big scale for a gas to liquid system. So therefore, the industrial emitters are typically in the range of 0.2 to 1 million tons per year of CO2 emission, as opposed to a large uh, gas power plant using uh, natural gas, for example, that will be more in the range of 3 to 6 million tons of CO2 per year. So we get the same capital efficiency as a, as a big plant, but in, in a smaller setting, which opens up basically the application for industrial emitter. When you look at the total cost of capturing CO2 and storing it, you're looking today at about $70 to $80 per ton, uh, so $50 for the capture portion and $20 or so for the storage of CO2. So on the capture side, this is where we focus on, half of the $50 is the capital charge required to repay for your investment, so it's capital uh, related. The other half is related to the operating costs. So that's where we, we shine and we reduce the, the capital cost charge equivalent to that $50. And how do you bring that cost down from the $50 for the capture itself? Well, eventually, cost could go down by being more, more efficient in the balance of plant that's required around the, uh, the contactor itself. You need to generate steam. You need to have integration with the existing site. So every site is very specific in its cost. So you need to find the best industrial uh, plants around the world that will have access to low-cost electricity, low-cost of energy to make the steam and the water usage and all this. So these are aspects um, that are not related specifically by the core technology to make the, the capture itself, either liquid or solid, have the same issue. But if you optimize this, I think you'll be able to lower the capital cost. The operating cost, which is the other half, about $25, $26 per ton, it's made up primarily of electricity usage to drive the compressor and the fans to feed the machine and compress the CO2 and the cost of the, the steam. So you need to have access to low-cost, carbon-free uh, electricity and uh, energy source. And clearly your modulized construction versus the kind of stick build uh, helps with the scalability We've obviously seen some of the false starts in the carbon capture space with huge investments and those projects either failed or never really took off. What do you think is different now for what you're providing that will help change what we've seen in the past with some of these failed projects? Well, we have a very uh, practical way of looking at the marketplace. So first of all, we're trying to develop what we call a CO2 marketplace. So so what's the CO2 marketplace? It's a place where you physically collect CO2, you physically capture the CO2, and you, you physically store the CO2 in massive way. And when you look at the task ahead, you need the equivalent of 10,000 plants of a million tons. So 
I think the best plant that was built on time, on cost, was the energy plant, uh, a coal power plant with NRG uh, a few years back. We need 10,000 of these plants. So 10,000, that's a lot. Like it, the, the parallel I'm making is the commercial aircraft industry. So it's the cost roughly of a capture plant of a Boeing 777 or an Airbus 380, yes? So three to $400 million each. So unless you start thinking in terms of scalability and reproducibility of doing these things, it will be very difficult to optimize the, the cost. So what we've done is we've, we've partnered with only two companies in the world to help us do the engineering construction of these facilities. Uh, we have QIT as a partner for North America. They're a leading uh, uh, EPC organization, engineering construction companies in, in North America. And we have Technip Energy in Europe. So you can make the equivalent that with QIT, we'll try to be with what Boeing is today in, in the commercial airline. And with Technip, we're trying to be what we, they are today with Airbus. So, and we are supplying basically the filters, the technology in the contactors. So it's like the engine, and there's only two engine manufacturer for these commercial aircraft. So we are the GE and the Pratt & Whitney of the, of the commercial airline industry, if you wish. But we're doing it in partnership with QIT and with Technip to make sure that we can get Lesson learned from the plant number one. Number two, remember there's 10,000 plant. 10,000 plant, it's equivalent to just the next 20 years, two plants every week that needs to be commissioned. So if you can modulize, you can optimize your way of delivering, and you can maximize the efficiency of building these plant and modulization of it, I think this is the way to reduce the overall costs and make these projects successful. And what's the lead time on these plants? I mean, obviously, it's going to depend on size, but you're talking about two a week, really, to meet the needs or, and the goals that we have set forth. Is Once you hit FID, what is the timeline after that? So when you hit FID, it typically takes about two years to develop the project, so the, the capture plant portion, so design, procuring, and construction of it. And in the world in general, and in North America particularly, there's a shortage of labor, construction labor. There's about a shortage of about 800,000 workers today in the United States. And with the infrastructure bill that's coming out, this is going to boost the infrastructure buildup, and it's going to be a bigger gap. So if you can find a way of moving the construction aspect of it, labor requirement, into a factory where you can build pre-skid systems or modulize uh, equipment, you will then have access to a different pool of labor to do these things, and you'll minimize the one that is going out and doing stick build type of thing. So that's why we've partnered with only two companies to be able to leverage this and design the system accordingly. And how far away do you think we are from that? Well, we're not far away. I think right now we are getting ready to take orders by the end of next year. Uh, two things need to happen. First of all, you need to engage into a multiple of uh, pre-FID, so pre-feasibility study with our very site specifics, which we're undertaking now with multiple projects, both in North America and the rest of the world, with the prime focus in North America. And we're actually in the process of building now a first factory to make the filters. Remember, the unique aspect of our technology is the solid filter. Nobody makes these filters today in the world. So we're building a factory now in Vancouver, a first one, we call it plant number one, that's going to be able to do 10 plants a year. Remember, we need to do two a week. So that's plant number one, and there'll be plant number two and so far. And we're putting up this investment even before having a, a FID on, on some projects. So we do believe that the market will open up and it will um, progress. So 
the, the way I like to describe this thing is, uh, you know, there's a tsunami of projects coming in. So, so typically when you look at the tsunami, you're, you're on the beach, you enjoy the sun, and then you suddenly sound that the birds are sounding away and they're flying away from the beach, yes? And then the elephants start moving and now you see the elephant moving away from the beach. Then they're silent and then the wave comes in, the tsunami, yes. So right now I would say the birds are flying away, the elephants are not moving yet, but when they move, very quickly after, there'll be a wave coming in of projects. So we're getting ready for it. Yeah, that's interesting. How, how do you see 2022 as it relates to these projects? Because I know in 21, a lot were announced. I mean, coming out of COP26, you had a lot of initiatives. Uh, a lot of these are still pre-FID. And there's some analysts that are saying that 2022 is probably going to be more of making good on those projects that have been announced. So either hitting FID or, or moving things along appropriately. And that 22 may actually see less announcements of these type of projects. Do you see it differently? I think we have now a series of emitters who in the past would be waiting for something to happen before they commit to a pre-feasibility study or feasibility study. So I see more of these things, but there's two key things to convert to get to FID. The goal is to get to implementation of these projects, not just studying it and announcing it. So two things need to happen. First, you need to make sure that there's CO2 storage hubs permitted to be able to safely store that CO2. That will be the, uh, the limiting step right now in getting these project FID. So, but there's a lot of activities and you see a lot of announcement in the last uh, 12 months about major companies, primarily the, the oil and gas players, organizing themselves to basically manage major CO2 hubs. And then you need to be able to monetize the CO2. So who pays for that CO2 capture? And in the United States, there is a, a tax credit. So you get a check from the government that basically gives you about $50 per ton if you use a saline storage. And this will be, there's legislation in place to go up to $85 per ton. At $85 per ton, you cover the capture of 50 and you cover the storage that is somewhere between 10 and $20. So you have plenty of, of mon way of monetizing this thing. Other countries like Canada or, or Europe are relying on a tax on carbon, which is the stick. Yeah, so you need the carrot, the 45Q, and then you need the stick. And the voluntary market will emerge at around $100 per ton. Once you have a clear way of monetizing it, and there's various business models to deploy this thing, I think this is when you're going to see the, the wave of projects just going to FID. And that's coming soon. Yeah, so you bring up the, the policy aspect. Obviously, there's the, the tax credit that will help offset the cost or the avoidance of, of a carbon tax, which are economic incentives for companies to adopt this and, and help with the value proposition. And I know that the uh, infrastructure bill that was passed here in the States allocated about $15 billion to carbon capture and storage. Do you think that's enough? Do you think that there needs to be more uh, changes coming forward that uh, will help with this adoption? Well, I think this is a great start to um, get the industry going. But what's missing is the 45Q enhancement from $50 to $85. That will be, to me, that, that's key to get things done. And people may say, oh, the government is subsidizing these large emitters, but let me give you two examples of carbon capture impact on two products. So take, for example, cement. If you were to put a capture plant at $50 per ton, you would double the price of cement. So who wants to be the first one to double its price of cement? But when you look at the where does the cement go, let's say in the United States, about 60% of it goes in concrete, in infrastructure that are owned by governments. 
So ultimately, the government is basically building up infrastructure with concrete. Now, the cost of concrete in these large infrastructure projects is about 1% to 2%. So if you were to double the price of concrete, you'd be increasing the price of that project by 1% or 2%. I'm pretty sure most of our infrastructure projects are going and sometimes inflated by more than just a couple percent. We'll be all happy. So climate-oriented procurement with carbon management um, requirement, I think, is key to demonstrate that an industry will be adapting now, now carbon capture at the bottom of the value chain, if you wish, of making cement. You take another example, uh, which is hydrogen. So you make hydrogen from uh, natural gas called steam methane reformer. The cost of doing it is about $1.50 per kilogram. You emit 10 tons of CO2 per ton of hydrogen. So if you capture the CO2 at $50, you're probably increasing the price to by 50 cents to maybe $2 per kilogram. Now, $2 per kilogram for hydrogen, what's the alternative? People refer to now to green hydrogen, which is you take electricity, renewable, and you make water from electrolysis. Well, it's costing 3 to $6 per kilogram to make that hydrogen. So suddenly they have a price point called blue hydrogen that is cost-effective to provide a fuel that people need. And when you burn that fuel, let's say in Japan, and you make it, let's say in North America, and you store the CO2, because we have plenty of space to do so, you end up exporting a, a fuel that when you burn it, let's say in Japan, it doesn't emit CO2. So suddenly Japan, if they want to meet their target, they will pay the 50 cents more for the hydrogen. So you understand how this thing works out? Eventually, this is not too expensive for society to do carbon capture and storage at $100 per ton. It is not. The example I can give you today is the waste management. In 1894, a fellow called Vante Arrhenius, yes, we pick up the name after him, makes the correlation between the CO2 going in the atmosphere and the temperature of heart increasing. So he made the exact same correlation that what we're living through, but you couldn't smell CO2, you could not see CO2. So it took 100 years for us to figure out that it had an impact on our climate. At the same time, there's a first company in New York City that starts collecting garbages from household. And do you know how many kilograms of waste you generate today, personally, at home? Probably not. And then what's the dollar per kilogram to collect that waste? Because you can smell and see this, an industry built up over the same period of time. And today it's built in in the price of goods and services that you buy. That's the same thing that needs to happen with carbon management. So it is not too expensive at $100 per ton. By the way, you pay $120 per ton for your garbage. And you generate on average between 0.7 to 1 ton per individual. You bring up hydrogen in that point. Do you view hydrogen as, as complementary to your business? Do you view it as a competitor? I mean, obviously, with the production of, of gray or brown hydrogen, it's going to require the CO2 emissions within the need, need to be captured. So do you see that as a business opportunity? Or how do you see hydrogen playing a role in what you do? Well, hydrogen is definitely uh, a market that we see complementary for us because we see the decarbonization of the existing base of hydrogen plant from natural gas as a, uh, an end market for us quickly. This is a sweet spot in terms of concentration of CO2 and availability of waste heat that you can integrate to, a, to have the lowest cost uh, of capture of, of the CO2. But you know, I, I looked at it, that all of the climate change, we, we need to stop this thing at, you know, it's one or the other. We need electric vehicle on steroids. We need renewable on steroids. We need hydrogen on steroids. And we need carbon management now. 
the sum of all this to have any impact on the climate to get to a net zero by 2050 is about $100 trillion of capital investment. Carbon management is about $2 trillion, 2%, for 20% of your CO2 emission. This is the more bang for your buck. It gets to the point that I've mentioned a lot is that for the energy transition, you have to have a gradual adoption of it because there's are going to be those hard to decarbonize sectors that are very critical to industry, to people, everybody's livelihood. And so to be able to have something that reduces the emissions while not disrupting, it may be a little bit more expensive in some areas, but not disrupting people's lives. It's good to have this carbon capture initiative. Question for you on kind of next steps. After capturing the carbon, what needs to be done from an infrastructure standpoint going all the way down to the storage? So we basically have a a factory or let's say a a capture facility that's over the fence roughly most of the time with an industrial emitter and it includes also the compression. And from that gate, you need to connect to a CO2 storage hub, which could be five miles away or it could be 100 miles away, depending on, on the location. In, in Europe, they chose to liquefy the CO2 and put it into ships because most of the industrial emitters are just on right by the ocean. And then they transport liquid to Norway, for example, uh, or UK, and then they store the CO2. So you need a, a, an infrastructure of pipeline, most likely, I would say, North American and uh, based, and a, an infrastructure of ships to move around the CO2. Once you get to the storage, the pore space management of storing it, well, you need to drill infrastructure to drill uh, about three kilometers underneath the surface into uh, a saline formation where you can inject the CO2 and safely store that CO2. So it, it's similar to, you know, you, you buy today um, these water bottles and then you fill it up with tap water and then you have a little... CO2 cartridge, you push it and you make bubbly water. You probably have this now instead of buying per year water. So that's the same principle. The CO2 compresses the CO2 we would deliver. And then when you push it down and you make bubbles into the, the water to make fuzzy water, well, that's the process, but it's three kilometers beneath the surface. And if you have a saline formation, then you have a reaction between the salt and then the CO2. And it makes a minerals that over time will basically lock in the CO2 ever. Um, in some of the cases, the CO2 will simply stay dissolved in, in these um, caverns. And, and on the critics for the long-term storage, I mean, what environmental impact, if any, do you see? Because obviously there are some that, uh, out there that are concerned with long-term impacts of the environment with storage methodology, whether it's underground three miles, whether it's buried under the sea. What do you say to that? Well, I'm not the expert, but I've talked to experts, and I feel very, very confident about their capabilities. It's not something you want your next-door neighbor to improvise in doing it, yes, <laughs> but it is something definitely that the oil and gas industry uh, have all the knowledge. Remember, they, they've been extracting for 100 years gas and uh, natural gas and CO2 uh, safely, and I think they have the same methodology and technology available to put the carbon back to where it came from. So um, I think this is a a market for them to lose and they can position themselves and make probably as much money in storing the CO2 as they've been in extracting over the last hundred years the fossil fuel. But there'll be also new players, uh, new players who are very focused, pure play in, in storage aspect of it. And with the skill set that they've uh, probably got from these major oil and gas, and you'll see uh, new companies doing that. So I'm very confident about that aspect of it. That's the easy part to me. And on the infrastructure rollout, I mean, is this something that 
is better for at least starting with with clusters for those pipelines being able to go to the storage facilities, or how do you see it efficiently being rolled out in the beginning? I see that the uh, the rollout will be a mixture of both. So it's probably more cost effective on the long run to leverage the pipeline infrastructure and and the storage capacity of a CO2 hub. But there is a few of these projects that are one-off uh, because the location of the, of the low-hanging fruit emitters are not nearby an existing infrastructure. So therefore, they're going and they're just doing a few miles uh, pipeline and then the storage is right on, underneath the emitters. So, so you'll see a few of those as well. The challenge is for the government to uh, speedily approve these uh, storage sites and, and permits. So the permitting aspect today, to me, is the bottleneck in getting these things done. And what other long-term uses do you see for the carbon? Do you see, uh, you know, I know that there's technology to put it back into cement. I mean, wh- what other uses do you see besides just storing it in these storage facilities? Well, everybody would like to have a circular economy where the CO2 goes back into a product. and you do. So technically, it, it is feasible just to take CO2 and recombining it with hydrogen and make fuel. There's no issue with it. The technology is known. But... CO2 is the result of uh, the decomposition of fossil fuel, and it's the byproduct. So it's a very stable molecule. And hydrogen, as you know, costs a lot of money and sometimes emits CO2. So when it becomes costly to reconvert these things into fuel. So I I don't believe this is going to be the massive market to get the industry going. Maybe there'll be a way one day where we can, through photosynthesis, synthetic photosynthesis, recombine CO2 to make fuel, that would be great. Meanwhile, you know, we, we do have niche application, uh, like putting it back into curing cement, but the amount of CO2 you need for that is quite limited. We need to do gigaton scale, so thousands of millions of amount of CO2 to be consumed. So uh, one product that I found very, very funny is uh, very, very cool is, uh, you know, polyol is just multiple chain of CO2 put together. So that's a chemical. So how do you translate this thing? You probably have bought recently um, a mattress, yes, and it was delivered by Amazon. So it was uh, all packed in a very small uh, box. So I, I did the mistake of telling my wife, I think you bought uh, too small of a mattress. And she says, no, 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 it's, it's made of polyol and it's vacuum package. So they open up the package and poop, 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 I have a double bed that was made. That's because of the CO2 polyol making that you're able to make such a new product. But the volume of CO2 required to make these products is so low that you wouldn't be able to do uh, carbon management at the scale we need to do so. There's also kind of, I guess, what I would say, the recycling of it, because you have enhanced oil recovery for CO2 floods in oil and gas drilling, which would put it back. And I mean, you're not getting rid of the oil and gas drilling under this method, right? You're, you're just trying to reduce the emissions. And going forward, you're going to need some type of oil and gas, whether it's for plastics or what. But this one is a bit tricky because remember the thesis what I was mentioning earlier, carbon capture was associated as a way to extend the life of fossil fuels or with coal power plants. Well, the second one was, oh, they're trying to do now oil extraction with CO2. So I think we have to go away from this discussion. And yes, there is a use. Now, technically, CO2 enhanced oil recovery is basically they were taking natural CO2 actually from the ground piping it miles away and putting it back into another oil reservoir and getting the last drop of oil while the CO2 kept being stored. So it was not changing really the, um, the having any impact on the environment per se. Now what could need to be done is to take the CO2 uh, from an, uh, an emitter, 
man-made and store it. Then you'd have an impact on the climate, but you still associated that carbon capture to the fossil fuel and oil and gas industry, which is people are trying to get away. So I think we have to get away from it for acceptance of carbon management. There may be niche application, but you know, you're looking at I know, something like 100 million or let's say uh, 100 plants uh, out of 10,000. So I think the, the 10,000 plant needs to be more focused on saline uh, storage. The Interchange is brought to you by the Yale Program in Financing and Deploying Clean Energy, training working professionals to accelerate the deployment of clean energy worldwide. According to the IPCC, we need an order of magnitude increase in investments in clean energy to meet the goals of the Paris Accord. Rising to this challenge means deploying human capacity in the field at a pace and scale never before experienced, developing the skills, instinct, and abilities of clean energy professionals like you, already hard at work to accelerate the transition to a clean economy. With this program, Yale University draws on its deep expertise, marrying academic rigor with practical skills and enabling organizations across the sector to invest in people who want to meet the climate change challenge with urgency. This cross-sectoral approach and interdisciplinary lens fosters an informed workforce and powerful knowledge networks, and most importantly, it builds a common language to better understand the interplay of policy, finance, and technologies that support the growth of the clean energy sector. To connect with Yale expertise right from your laptop, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact, visit yalecleanenergy.info interchange and apply before March 13, 2022. From a regional standpoint, what differences do you see in what's going on in Europe uh, versus the U.S. from the carbon capture and storage standpoint? Do you see it taking off and accelerating a little bit more in one area than the other? And if so, why? Those are two different uh, market dynamics. So I would say that the, the public acceptance and pressure of carbon management is probably greater in Europe than it is in, in North America. They have policies being put in place for a price on carbon. They have policies to have um, what they call border carbon adjustments. So any product in and out of a country, they'll look at its carbon footprint and then you'll be taxed on the amount of carbon. Because if you tax a, a single country, you're penalizing that country. But if everything that comes in and out of that country now has a tax on the goods and services coming in because you've done the carbon footprint, then that's an interesting. So Europe is very well advanced in developing these uh, policies. Uh, Canada is, is linking to it. United States is a bit shy. But at the same time, the only guys who are giving you a check <laughs> to do things is the U.S. government. And they're not doing it by putting a tax on carbon, but they're giving it by taking the public money and making good with the environment, which at the end of the day, it's always going to be paid by all of us anyway. So it's, it's just a different place. So I, I think North America has a better acceptance of pipeline than in Europe. Uh, so the cost of moving the CO2 and storing it will probably be cheaper in North America than in Europe. Uh, you're looking at eventually 10 to 20 instead of 20 to $30 per ton for storage and pipeline. The cost of uh, energy to do the capture, you need electricity to drive the fans and the compressor, and you need energy to make the steam to regenerate the, the filters or the liquid system. Cost of natural gas is half the price than Europe in North America, and cost of electricity also is much lower. You're in the four cents per kilowatt hour versus probably eight cents per kilowatt hour in Europe. So your price point for common capture will be always higher in Europe than it will be in North America. You know, on the uh, 
on the filters that you produce, uh, how long do those last? I mean, from an operating cost standpoint, you know, how long can go before you replace them just from, like they said, an ongoing cost standpoint? So from a cost point of view, the lifetime of these filters will be somewhere between three and five years. And the replacement cost, if you annualize this, will be equivalent to something between three and five dollar per ton of CO2 as a, an operating charge. So it's not too bad. And overall, I think the liquid systems will be somewhere between, I would say, 5 and $10, sometimes a bit higher because you have lots of liquids. And one of the technology advantages that we have is um, we, we can work on intermittent industrial processes. When you make steel, when you make lime, or you have on and off operation, um, you may stop for a minute every 10 minutes, or, or you may stop the process every hour for every 10 hours. So that process is not very good for gas or liquid systems. But in, in our case, as a solid, we just stop. It's like a vacuum cleaner. You just stop, you restart, stop and restart, same thing. So we have no issue working with this. So that's an advantage in, in doing it. And we, we lose less performance in doing that than the liquid system. Where do you see the investments in these types of projects coming from? Uh, are you partnering with anybody on the industry side currently? So I see the investment, there's a big change in the last I would say 12 to 15 months. First of all, I, I think the, the financial community, the financial sector, is now playing a major role, a leading role, in making everyone conscious that climate change is seriously happening and we need to spend $100 trillion to fix the problem. So there's a lot of capital that normally you would not see. You would only see the venture capital or some corporate VC involved in developing technology over a 10, 15 year lifetime, now you see the financial market, I would say, approaching the edge of the valley of debt. You know, our startups like us, we, we spend you know, 10 years raising 200 million in small tranches. Yes, so we're in the valley of debt. So, and until you can prove your technology and you see it's working and so far, it is very, very difficult to get uh, growth capital. So now I, I see uh, pension funds, ESG focus, some growth capital investors on the edge and looking at which one of these companies can be pulled out of the valley of debt and accelerate into deployment. So, and we're one of those. And I think um, the CEO of BlackRock, uh, Larry Fink, made a statement very uh, recently. He says the next 1,000 unicorns or startups worth at least a billion dollars will be involved in climate technology, not IT. So we're on that trajectory uh, as a company to become one of those unicorns. Yeah, BlackRock's been pretty vocal about their strategy and position moving forward as it relates to the energy transition. I mean, you are talking about earlier, you know, two plants a week is what's needed. I mean, these are massive investments. So, I mean, even with a increased interest in the financing, there's still a tremendous amount of money that needs to be raised and allocated to these projects. Where do you see it coming from? I mean, is it continued government incentives? I mean, what are these investors needing to look at besides just the proven technology to be able to put the big dollars behind it that are needed? So I think I go back to my four pillars of um, climate change solutions. So a renewable now is becoming commoditized. People understand the cost and the risk profile of it. For about close to 15 years, the government have been giving subsidies to help and tax credits similar to what we're talking with 45Q to, to get the industry going. So that's going now. We need just to accelerate the deployment of it. 
So earlier, the, the, the return on investment of these early renewable projects were probably in the 10, 15% return on investment. Now, when you do a solar, if you do 6 to 8% return, that's a pretty good solar one. So carbon capture is in the space now of about, I would say, 10 to 15% return potential if you monetize at about uh, 70 to $80 per ton on these projects. So I think you're going to see a, a series of investors who are looking now to do this. But not everybody likes the risk of a first-of-a-kind plant, second-of-a-kind. They like So government are there to help manage that risk by providing either loan guarantee and that kind of financing and some grants aspect of it just to demonstrate the first-of-a-kind. So this is where these billions of dollars in the infrastructure bill from the U.S. government will be very useful. A majority of that money is to pay for feed studies and to pay for early deployment of, of these plants. So I, I see this as being positive. But there's a lot of people now looking at project finance of these plants. And there's two business models. Um, one is an emitter is sophisticated enough to basically add one piece of equipment to his process, end of the pipe, and then he, he does the capture himself. He knows how to do these things. And somebody comes to his fence and says, well, I can take your CO2 and then store it for a fee. So it's called uh, CO2 management for a fee. So that's a business model that the oil and gas are, are probably taking and a few developers are taking to safely store the CO2. Other people may say, well, I don't know how to develop a carbon capture project. I don't know how to tap on the government grants and this. So, so there's a business model of carbon capture as a service popping up. And, and so you, you are a developer who build, design, own and operate these facilities uh, for a fee. It's like charging a tipping fee to uh, an emitter to take its CO2 and be able to safely capture and eventually store the CO2. So, so these business models will emerge and there'll be money to be made by many people in the industry. This has to become a commercially viable industry, even though it's a waste material. And the example I go back is waste management. Everybody makes money in waste management, yes? But it's a waste. There's no use for that waste. Do you see a risk in the investment money flowing outside of the U.S., just given some of the concerns you raised earlier about the permitting process taking a little bit longer and maybe Canada or the U.K. being a little bit more advanced, that investment professionals are going to be looking in those regions, just given a little bit more certainty around the timeline? Could be. I don't think the jury is out yet that anybody has a de-risking from an investor point of view value chain. And it's a multiple of individuals or companies that, you know, private partner, public partnership that will achieve these things. So I think the, the North Americans are in the leading pack, having the, uh, the 45Q here in the U.S. And Canada is looking seriously at implementing something similar. But, you know, there'll be some European project as well. Um, every country made pledge for net zero. So they're in the game now. They have no choice. It's not just an emitter issue. <laughs> They're in the game. Net zero means you don't emit CO2 or whatever you emit, you balance out by taking CO2 out of the air. Yeah, but it's very complementary to the renewable story because you've got a combination of wind, solar, and then for those hard to abate sectors or the necessary sectors uh, of emitters that I would say, you've got the carbon capture and storage story behind it to be able to eliminate carbon emissions. Yeah, but you know, in the past, normally it's the other way around. We, we trade normally CO2 credits based on avoided CO2, yes? Now we're talking about a physical market because even though this is happening, you still continue emitting CO2. So unless you address the hard 
CO2 molecule going up in the atmosphere or already there, that's a physical market for CO2. That's what I call the CO2 marketplace. This is not carbon credits. Carbon credits is an avoided CO2. So I, I think this is a, a distinction now that people are starting to make. And if you embedded into these things the, um, the LCA, or the life cycle analysis of every product and its CO2 emission footprint, I think you know one day you're going to be buying a product from Amazon and it's going to say, oh, well, the LCA of that product is X you know, kilogram of CO2 for that product at $150 per ton. We're charging you that thing and that's it. Then they're a collector of the money from the public, yes? that can be refunneled by them investing into projects. But today, Amazon is not investing in a point source cement factory carbon capture. They're not investing in a pulp paper plant to capture CO2, yes, which they should eventually. So you see the dynamic, that's what I call the CO2 microplace. It's, it's quite exciting, I think. It's going to end up being a, a great opportunity of investment for many, many products and services to be developed around that industry. It becomes like everybody's phone bill, right? It's like two pages long with all these different line items. You're eventually <laughs> going to see a CO2 yeah. line item on, on your bill that, uh, that you're it. paying for for That's the investment in the, yeah. in the carbon capture story. So at Zvante, we want to be the Zvante inside every one of these carbon capture plants, air capture or point source, so, like the Intel. You're probably my age now, so you, you probably got this Intel inside. I want the Zvante inside of all these capture plants. So. So go, going forward, you know, 10, 20 years, uh, how do you see this playing out? And what would you say are, you know, the two or three things that really need to happen for this to accelerate? I, mean, I know you said the, the 2,000 plants per week, uh, which obviously I think is, is unachievable, at, at least right now, uh, given, the, given the lead time, given the investment. But what can be done to accelerate that, whether it's a, a policy standpoint, whether it's continued infrastructure build out, what would you like to see happen? Well, it starts first with policies. We need to have clear, stable policies about the price of carbon for society. No question asked. Regardless what government is in power, it's the same policy for the next 20 years, 30 years. So that's number one. And the price of carbon fixed with public-private uh, partnership to monetize that, that CO2. So I think we've talked about a few examples. The permitting of these CO2 storage hubs needs to be accelerated, and it needs to be a clear path to do these things. I think if you have this, then the issue will be about, can you deliver, you know, a thousand plant per year? Well, we can deliver a thousand Airbus and Boeing a year, but how many players do we have? Two. And how many engine supply do you have? Two. That supply chain is well optimized and they've mass produced these aircraft. Same thing needs to happen with carbon management. I mean, I think from a storage standpoint, I was reading a recent research report that said uh, we've got enough current storage locations for CO2 uh, to capture emissions for the next 400 years. So we've got ample storage capacity. And I think it's just continued advancement of the carbon capture story, as well as the infrastructure and transport of that CO2 to the appropriate storage locations. Yeah, I fully agree. I think in North America, we're sitting on a, on a golden mine in terms of um, storage capacity, and as well, the cost of uh, electricity and natural gas that's required to drive these capture plants or direct air capture plants, uh, which would be more and more carbon-free. So uh, I would say Middle East also has quite a bit of uh, storage capacity as well. So. 
it's a matter of rebalancing where you're going to do these things versus the use. But, you know, hydrogen is a vector where you can move and consume the hydrogen without burning the CO2 when you, you burn the hydrogen. So I think this will probably be the next fuel uh, that people will look at having a low carbon footprint. So what's next for Swante? What's next for us? So we are in the growth phase. We are very active. I call it the three P's. So people, partnership, and projects. So we build, we've hired more than 70 people in the last 12 months. So we're now at 160 people up. Uh, we're building up a factory to make the filters first ever. So setting up the infrastructure for it. We're developing very key partnership along the value supply chain. So in us making the filters, so we have partners, for example, with BSF in helping us scale up the synthesis of the sorbent, which is the raw material that goes into our filter making. And then we have partnership with two of the largest engineering construction company we, we want to go to market with, so um, channel to market partner like Qwit and Technip Energy for the, the rest of the world. In terms of project, then we're going after with them as one entity, uh, one partnership entity going after the FID of uh, multiple of these projects. So we can basically develop 10 projects a year because we will have a factory capable of doing 10 plants a year of a million tons. So that's plan number one. <laughs> I mean, on the technology, obviously, the technology that you've developed helps with the hard to decarbonize sector just based on the pressure and the concentration. But what do you see from a competitive standpoint? For Swante, other competitors out there that might be developing carbon capture technologies that you would look at as a competitor right now? When I answer the question of competitors to um, my investors, I tell them it's to do nothing. So not doing carbon capture, that's the competition, it's the inertia. Once you've passed this inertia and you want to do something, obviously people quickly look at their process and say, can I use liquid amine because it's proven? Even though it's a bit more costly, can I do it? And and we're finding out now that some of the industrial application as intermittent operation or in strange uh, permitting requirement of what you throw up in the air as an emission, and then liquid amine gets discarded uh, because of that. So now you're back to solid sorbent, and we are in the leading position. And then you have other people looking at uh, cryogenic. So it's like freezing CO2 and trying to extract the CO2 afterward. Technically, this is a, a great technical approach, but there is some technical challenges in breaking ice on each exchanger to continuously, economically. So this is something that may, may come. Membranes is, is also potentially, but with different ones. So, But I think from a um, second-generation perspective, solid sorbent seems to be emerging. So in that space, we have a leading, very leading position. There's a few projects that I'm aware of in, in very large energy companies that are trying to, to get and develop, which is good, the more people you have in doing it. But I'm, I'm building up an infrastructure here. I'm, I'm really building up a, a supply chain of partners that um, eventually will help us dominate the market so with partnership like BSF and where they will be part of the solutions. I guess lastly, I'll ask you, where do you think we are in terms of the energy transition and hitting the net zero targets that we have? Are, are we on track? Do you think a lot more needs to be done? We're so far away from it. I don't think people in general understand the magnitude of what needs to be done. I've just described over this podcast what it would take to do 2% of the investment needed for climate change, yes, according to carbon management. Two trillion. You see, I'm, I'm trying to build an Airbus and a Boeing company with GE and Pratt & Whitney as 
two of the major suppliers. So I'm trying to be one of those. So you see the magnitude it takes just for 2% of the investment. So imagine the rest. <laughs> it is mind-boggling. But the good news now is that we now have a financial partner, financial community that are leading discussion with companies, with governments. Um, if you take Mark Carney, for example, uh, he says, well, we need $100 trillion to be ready to um, address climate change. It has to come from the private sector. So he says, look at what your bank insure fund manager do, not what they say. So I think this is key. The financial sector, in my mind, over the next 12 to 24 months, will be making some very bold move in that space helping companies like us to basically get out of valley of debt and become main players in the industry. Something the Silicon Valley probably did to get the IT industry where it is today, but it's going to be done now by different investors, the pension fund, ESG focus. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, your point about the massive undertaking that's the energy transition, I've always said it's a long equation with multiple inputs into it. And you can't change one and lose sight of another. And when you look at carbon capture being a piece of it, and you've got the renewable aspect, solar, wind, you've got the infrastructure build out. I mean, I think the good news that we're seeing differently, uh, not only you've articulated, but other guests have said the same thing, is the financing environment over the past one to two years has greatly improved. So I think you've seen government starting to push. You've seen investment starting to come in. But to Gurney's point, is see what they do, not what they say. There's been a lot of press releases come out, but what's behind those? What's actually being done? Yeah. And I think, I mean, those have been going on for a few years now, but I think now within the past, like I said, year to two years, you're starting to see some type of action. But it's a Herculean effort yeah. to decarbonize the world, and it takes a multiple different industries, people involved, governments, you name it, to take action. But to your point about being so far away that people are talking about a degree and a half scenario that a lot of things have to come in place to be able to hit those goals. And, and I've said before, that doesn't mean you stop. You keep seeing how far you can get uh, and continue to drive it. Well, I don't want to sound impolite, but you're, you were an investment banker. So I think 12 months ago, no investment banker analysts would be focusing on carbon capture. I don't think they knew how to spell CCS or knew what CCS meant. So now they do. Now you have many of these investment bankers and banks having analysts focusing on the CCS and understanding the magnitude of the CO2 marketplace and the, and the various business model into it. And now they're trying to understand who's what into that industry. So something I could not see 12 months ago. So that's very positive. We're still waiting for uh, companies to be involved in, uh, in having public uh, listing in pure play carbon capture. There's only one company today, but I think you're going to see a few of them popping up over the next uh, 24 months, in my, my mind. And then the general public now will need to understand what this means, because this is not something easy for the general public to understand what carbon management is. Right? That would be great. You, you get a, a couple of uh, public companies out there and get some equity research analysts behind it, getting the story and the understanding out there, and that'll just help further drive uh, equity investment into the initiative. Your podcast is great, and I'm very pleased that I was able to do so and share some of it because I'm, I'm really trying to go out and explain in simple terms what carbon management is about, but it's not something most of people will physically see. Yeah, you can see a windmill when you drive. You can see 
a solar panel, you can drive an electric vehicle, it will be difficult to see our carbon capture plant. <laughs> yeah, and, and to your point about the investment banking community, over the past 12 months, the uh, inquiries and everything in my discussions with the investment bankers has been carbon capture and storage, uh, hydrogen. I mean, those have been key topics of discussion, getting the industry better informed and understanding about to be able to put the advisory and the money behind. Great. Fun times ahead. Yeah, well, listen, I really appreciate, again, you coming on the podcast. It's a fascinating topic and one that is really gaining steam. And I think it's a key piece of the overall energy transition. And, and I expect more good things to come from Swante and, and hearing more about the growth trajectory and more of these plants being built. But thank you for your time today. Pleasure. Stay tuned. We'll talk again in six months. I think you'll be very pleased with the progress we're going to be making. So thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. I hope you were able to learn something new and gain some insight on the future of carbon management as part of the energy transition. Once again, thank you, Claude and Swante, for sharing your thoughts and time with us. You can follow The Interchange at Interchange Show on Twitter, and don't be afraid to DM or tweet us with any topics you would like to hear on a future episode. See you next time on The Interchange Recharged.